listening to First Church Charlotte. We always try to start on five after, and um, I want to thank you all, first of all, for making some time to join with us. Um, we don't want to try to do life, uh, ministry, anything alone. We weren't made for that. We were made to live in spiritual community, and that's one of the reasons why we leverage technology to create as many uh, opportunities for us to meet in smaller groups. Um, yes, if we lived in a small town and you could walk down to the neighbor's house, then it'd be much easier to have lots of meetings of smaller sizes, but we're in a metro. We come from all over. And so this is one way in which we can try as much as possible to grow together. So I just want to say thank you for all of your effort to be a part of this time of scripture and reflection. And we have been in Mark chapter number nine. And if you will remember with me, there's been a sequence of things that have happened. Um, before I, I go any further, I want to say thank you to Pastor Don for bringing the word last week. Uh, he did a great job on the subject of waiting upon the Lord and learning how to wait. It is on the church YouTube channel if you would like to watch that. Chapter 9, the book of Mark, starts with Jesus transfigured upon the mountain. We talked about it. From the mountaintop, they go down into the valley where the crowd is waiting, desperate with needs. There's conflict in the valley. There's doubt in the valley. There's differences of religious opinion in the valley. <laughs> there is no shortage of conflict and having to deal with people who do not like Jesus or the disciples. But the problem and the reason why they will not simply stay at a distance is because the needs are in the valley. Yes, there's conflict in the valley. Yes, there's disagreement in the valley. But the valley is where the needs are. And so Jesus will not stay on a mountaintop of glory. He will come down to where the needs are. And that's the first lesson that we always remind ourselves. Uh, we have to be careful with the illusion that we always in some way strive to live on the mountaintop. Uh, not, not really. <laughs> uh, we are in the fields of harvest. The mountaintop is a preparatory moment. Jesus ministered for three and a half years. How many times was he transfigured? Once. How many times was he isolated on a mountaintop with visions of prophetic past and promise once. But ask yourself this question, how many broken hearts did Jesus heal? How many sick people did Jesus heal? How many uh, terrified uh, individuals uh, looking at the needs and sicknesses of loved ones? Did he change their life by the healing promise? Uh, the needs are in the valley. And yes, Sometimes uh, we have to make ourselves go back to the valley. It isn't just the Pharisees and scribes who are critically waiting upon them. There's failure waiting on him in the valley. His disciples have failed at rebuking and, uh, how shall we say, delivering a boy from demonic oppression. And we talked about this two weeks ago. It is heavy with spiritual insight and teaching, and we sought to learn and grow from that. And the famous passage, these kinds come out by prayer and fasting 
or this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. And we talked about how, how these two things together constitute a, a spiritual way, a positive prayer is what we're turning toward and a negative fasting. That's what we're turning away from fasting. I'm not going to take time to teach about it now, lest I fill all of you with despair and gloom talking about fasting. Remember, there needs to be things in your life that you are living every day saying no to things in your flesh that you are saying no to. Fasting is an act. Yes, it is a discipline. Yes, but it is also a principle that we live. We turn away from something in order to turn towards something. We say no to some things in order to have time to say yes to some things. None of us can have it all, heaven and earth, flesh and spirit the things of self, and then the things of God. It's just not how our hearts are constructed. This is how a house divided by itself can emerge in sacred literature, the writing of the Gospels, as a lasting lesson given by the Lord Jesus um, that has importance in the kind of life we choose to live. What are we turning toward? Hopefully it's the kingdom of God, the promises of God, that's first. Then the purpose of God, the mission of God that follows upon uh, the heels of an initial commitment. And so uh, we read that together and we're starting now. Hopefully you have your Bibles and you can, however you read Bible, whether you have a traditional Bible or you read on your uh, phone, lots of people who do that. It is handy to have a Bible with you all the time. Uh, They then having learned again, or I should say it differently. I I don't know that they learned. I presume they learned, but I know that Jesus has demonstrated something that they may or may not have learned something from. And that is uh, this issue of the child possessed of demons, uh, rebellious to the faith and reluctant to leave at the level of faith the disciples demonstrate, nonetheless banished at the power of the name of Jesus. Now we're at verse 30. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee. He did not anyone to know, he did not want anyone to know it. Why? I'll tell you what I think. I think it's because he's got to get through to his disciples something that they are uh, they've been introduced to the idea, but that's not the same thing as accepting the idea. And what is the idea? He needs to spend time with them. They've got to get this. The whole truth of this hope is built upon what's about to happen. The whole theology of spiritual renewal and real lived redemption is based upon what's about to happen. They have to get it. There's a time for the crowds, but then there's a time to teach people who you're depending on. That is this time. For he taught his disciples and said to them, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. He's got to get this through to them. If they miss this, they will miss the cross. In the gospel, they'll miss the sacrificial effort of taking another individual sin, my life for yours, my righteousness for your rags, my goodness for your malevolence. This has to be somehow imprinted in their hearts because this is the whole story right here. The reason why we rally around Easter as kind of the highest day of the Christian calendar is because this is the whole story. His righteousness for our rags, 
his righteousness for our sin and rebellion. This is the whole story. It's not us being good enough. It's about him giving of himself. It's not about our accomplishment. It's about his generosity. We are not the heroes of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story. This goes against the flesh because there is a natural tendency in everyone's carnal narrative to tell the story where they are the hero of their own story. This is so established and so resolute that even modern philosophers who have written about this, they talk about the hero's journey and how all the great myths are based around this hero's journey and all the successful forms of uh, motivating people to make changes changes in their life, to overcome trauma, all is in some way uh, threaded through this template, this motif of the hero's journey. But in the Christian story, we are not the hero of our journey. This matters. This has implications. Because as long as I am the hero of my story, I'll never be a worshiper. As long as I'm the one doing well, I'll never be a worshiper. I have to tell a different story. Jesus is the hero of my story. It's his blood covering my sin. 32, but they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. He obviously cares about this so much. They want to pretend that they get it, even when they don't. Here's the fascinating reality. Jesus as God knows that they don't get it but he doesn't push them, impress them. It's almost as though God looks at an individual heart and decides that's enough for now. That's about what I can expect for now. I wish us Christians were as good at doing this as Jesus seems to be. They're doing as good as they can do for now. We're going to just walk on. They understand as much as they can for now. Some of us would kick them out of the discipleship circle. Not us, but you get the idea. It's almost as though Jesus is tolerant with the fact that they are, they're understanding as much as they can. And he does not embarrass them, number one. He does not mock them, number two. He doesn't publicly shame them. And finally, he does not alienate them because they don't get what he's trying to give. 33, when he came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what is it you disputed among yourselves on the road? What do you do when you don't understand? Well, you change the subject to something you do understand. What do you do when you cannot control something in your life? Well, you turn your focus to something you can control. Uh, This is the way of, of coping. This isn't a story of transformation. This is a story of coping, do you see? What had they been arguing about? Well, you might have guessed it if you've heard any of this preached before. They're arguing over who has the most preeminence among them. Sounds like religious people. Um, who is the most powerful? Who preached the most conferences? Who has the most conversions? Who has the most status? Who is the celebrity preacher? Whose church is bigger than whose church? When we don't understand what God's doing, we turn our focus to what we think we are doing. But what we're really doing is polishing our own vanity. And the Lord knows this. He will not call them out on the fact they don't understand Calvary but he will call them out on the fact that they're creating a death culture. I hope you heard what I just said, because I'm going to repeat it. And I hope you hear it again the second time. He would not call them out when they did not understand Calvary. He knew there was more teaching there. Well, in, when they were creating a culture 
of internal competition and who's better than who, he called them out. Um, If the Lord will help me, I'm going to preach about this a little bit Sunday um, and about how the words we use and the things we say give birth to something within us. But I'm not doing that tonight. I'm just trying to let your appetite a little while. He would not call them out on their confusion on Calvary. He let them pretend they understood. He knew. But when they started down this road of I'm better than you, I'm more powerful than you, my church is bigger than yours, my ministry is more successful, he would not let that pass into a lesson they someday learned. He stopped it right there. He would not let it live because words birth things within us. They kept silent for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest He sat down and called the 12 and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Imagine Uh, If I was to rephrase this in a different way for him to take a child before the disciples and say some version of this to them, you see this child, this is the heart of God right here. Not just children, not just this child, not just a child, but the people you do not notice, God notices. And the people who you do not notice, cater to because they have nothing they can do for you or give to you. God notices the people who cannot in some way pay you. God notices. This is the whole kingdom of God right here. So the two principles are, uh, are how this section uh, will start verse 38 next week. Uh, This section ends and it is uh, these two uh, principles that are placed beside each other. And I would almost say presented as a compound, not two things separately, but as a compound. Uh, Number one, and that is this, the path to preeminence in the kingdom of heaven is the opposite of what you would expect. And if you cannot value someone who can do nothing for you, you cannot see the value of the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to say it again because I like to repeat myself. What you think you would do to gain preeminence in the kingdom of God is actually the opposite. You're doing everything exactly wrong. You're trying to figure out who has power and then make them like you, make them indebted to you, make them in some way uh, inclined towards you where you're included with the big names, where you're a somebody. Everything you think you know about how the kingdom of God is structured and how one might prosper in the kingdom of God is 100% exactly wrong. You have to flip the order and you have to say in this kingdom, the way to preeminence is service and the way to have is to give. The way to rise in some useful or even preeminent way is to throw yourself wholeheartedly into the need 
and into the lowly. Secondly, like unto the first, if you can't value the person who you might smile at and ignore, you'll never understand the heart of God. Because everybody you tend to ignore, God loves. Everyone you tend to dismiss, God loves. Now, I say I would say most of us, as we think through this, there's a part of us that that we have no problem in the understanding, as though Jesus as a teacher, as a prophet, even as the Son of God, it's a thesis that if we think about, we can understand um, as long as it is in a theoretical or shall shall I dare say, um, as long as it's in a type of ideal, uh, then we, we accept it as a thesis because we think to ourselves, all right, well, the kingdom of heaven has to be different than the world because this world and its structures, its values, its motivations, uh, it's truly part of what is wrong with the world. And so you might think that if there's a good kingdom, it's going to have to be built in a wholly different manner. So uh, it would make sense that this kingdom, this kingdom would uh, have a different set of values. And, and one might think, well, if this kingdom is going to be what's right with the world uh, uh, more, if this kingdom is going to be how we make this broken world whole, then it would make sense that it, it, it has, it is a, it's like an opposite. It's a, antithesis antithesis to a thesis it's it's an opposite so yeah that makes sense that makes sense we don't have a problem any of us imagining a better world and seeing that this could be yeah i kind of get that 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 makes sense to me we don't have a problem imagine that if god is infinite good and if god is infinitely powerful and infinitely capable and infinitely wealthy and if he doesn't try to do justice, but he is justice, and if he doesn't try to do goodness, but he is goodness, not to show us the way, but he is the way, not to teach us the truth, but he is the truth. Yeah, it would make sense that any kingdom he established would have this different order. Okay, so that kind of makes sense. Why then is it so hard to live? Why is it so hard for me to live it? If we can get this in a type of uh, logical or even spiritual exercise, why is it so hard to live? And I, I, I've thought about this, as I'm sure you have, um, and I have uh, tried to wrestle with it as a principle. Okay, well, why is it actually so hard to live? Because the place, and this is kind of my first take at it, the, the, the place where we have to believe it, is not in the theoretical, but it's in the practical. You see, we understand it. We get it as an ideal. Yeah, if you're going to have a good kingdom, if you're going to have a godly kingdom, it's going to have to have an opposite. But then when we're asked to live it, it's in the practical. What do I mean by that? It's a work day at the church. Nobody notices what I do. You see, I understand it in the theoretical but the faith is not in the theoretical. The faith is in the practical because there was an outreach at the church and I showed up and no one noticed I was there. Um, there was a need at the church. I gave a bunch of money. No one has said a thing to me about it, not even the preacher. Well, the preacher may not be super focused on money. <laughs> Maybe he's not, you know, pouring over the reports every week, counting up the pennies, uh, you know. Uh, 
Why is it hard as Christians to, in some way, understand something as an ideal, but not understand it in a practical sense? So I've been informed by my wife that my video is off and I know not why, but I'm going to continue speaking. And hopefully you can just imagine me being a very uh, much more handsome person than I, I actually am. So I will thank you in advance and whoever your favorite, most uh, uh, beautiful uh, actor is just imagine that that's me. Uh, and he's teaching you. So thank you in advance for that. <laughs> um, all right. So continuing on. Um, the challenge is even though I understand something in the in the theoretical, the faith required is oftentimes in the practical. This is exactly the same thing we run into with such things as forgiving people. We can understand in, on a spiritual level um, that, look, the, the kind of things that would make a broken world whole is really a turn away from this kind of, of, of obsession, this kind of, of focus uh, upon whether or not we can forgive somebody, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but in the real world, it keeps coming back to us again and again and again. Uh, it keeps uh, in some way working on us and and and, lead and 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 waking us up at night and disturbing us. And uh, you understand what I mean? The pain of it, the the difficulty of it. We we want to move on. See, I can teach and do technical support at the same time. Um, so <laughs> Jesus is not satisfied for us to know it on a spiritual level. The test is not going to be in the theoretical. The test is going to be in the practical. And so imagine this uh, stack of events, okay? We want to understand Matthew chapter number nine. I deeply want to understand chapter, uh, uh, the book of Mark, excuse me, not Matthew. Uh, I, want to, I want to think on it. I want to reflect upon it. I want to live in the words. I want to go through it. And this is how I do. I, I enjoy it. I feel like it's the way you honor the text. And all right, what is happening here? First, you have revelation. If we were all in the same room, I'd make you say revelation in a very preacherly manner. Uh, then you have a failure. You have revelation, and Jesus rescues the disciples from a failure. You've had revelation on the mountaintop, and you've had what in the valley? Demonstration. In both cases, there is the power of, of Jesus demonstrated powerfully, whether it is in revelation, remember revelation, or whether it is in demonstration. Revelation is identity. Revela uh, uh, demonstration is authority. Get that. Understand it. On the mountaintop, that's about identity. In the valley, that's about authority. What would you talk about next? Well, <laughs> There tends to be uh, natural responses to whatever's just happened. The strongest emotions in your life are the most recent, the, least, the most recent things that have impacted you. The further we get away from things, the less emotional impact they have. So, what what would the disciples be primarily focused upon? Revelation, 
demonstration. Revelation demonstration. One identity, one authority. In both cases, Jesus is the victor. Jesus has overcome it all. We haven't done anything. We're like the, the gang that can't shoot straight. We, we get rebuked on the mountaintop because we can't hush. We fail at casting out the demons in the valley because we don't fast enough. And we haven't turned away from something. Then, instead of focusing uh, on that, there's almost like there's this exhaustion in their spirit. And they change the subject. When you cannot understand, you have a limit where you just got to walk away from it. And they fall to disagreeing among themselves over who's the greatest. Now, whether or not we take time to understand it, this is directly related to their lack of fasting. Who is the best is directly related to their lack of fasting. What is it that fasting does? Fasting is the strongest war, the weapon you can have, weapon of war you can have against selfishness. Fasting is. Yourself suffers more than anything else when you fast. And I don't know how many of you have fast extendedly, but there'll come a point if you keep fasting uh, where you will get to a state of spiritual brokenness and you'll walk into the presence of God. At least I've heard this over and over from people I know. Um, it's been my experience, other people. Fasting will get you to the point where you are so sensitive that you can just walk into a service and you're immediately uh, broken in your spirit. You, you don't, it's not, it's not like you have a bunch of things to ask for. It's just like this brokenness of spirit uh, places you in close proximity. If you've never had that experience and you are healthy enough to do so, you shouldn't fast without consideration to your health. Um, uh, that, that may include uh, some professional uh, advice. If you have a specific health need, um, let's be good stewards and let's not be petty about it. Let's just do be good stewards. Um, Try it. If you're healthy, go on an extended fast and notice about some, for me, it's usually after day five, after day three, um, I'm not super hungry anymore. Um, now I just want to eat because I miss it, but my hunger is not at the same level. It's, it's psychological now. Um, but sometimes between day five and seven, a brokenness enters my spirit. The fact that the disciples are arguing over who has the most credibility is a very sign that their flesh is not submitted to the spirit. Do you see that? What stopped them? Their uh, lack of fasting. It's almost as, remember, uh, okay, uh, real quick. Remember, I've said this a lot. You guys have heard this. In the garden, Lucifer does not invite Eve to worship Lucifer. Lucifer invites Eve to serve herself. And by serving herself, she will join on Lucifer's team. So she sees God as a competition, an adversary. She eats the fruit, joins the self-serve, put me first team, and is in league with Lucifer, not because she fell and worshiped Lucifer, not because she's a witch or a lord warlock. That's just silly in many regards. But because she's serving herself, then you will be like God. What did Lucifer say when he tried to lead an insurrection of the throne? I will ascend upon high. Adam and Eve are trying to do the same thing as Lucifer. Okay, that's this, the path of self. What does fasting do? Prayer turns us toward God. Fasting turns us away from self. Why couldn't they cast out the demons? Self, 
You need more fasting. And what's the symptom of that? Preeminence, pride, who's in charge of who, whose name is in the lights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm almost done. If any of you have any questions, feel free to, to hit me up with them. But what is the answer of their failure, failure to perceive Jesus's time and place? What do I mean by that? Revelation, the fulfillment of prophecy on the mountaintop, demonstration of Christ's authority in the valley, the pointing out of the reason for their failure, lack of fasting, too much self, fasting attacks self. We turn away from something when we fast. And now the final symptom I would suggest, and I, I this isn't something I got out of a book. This is just, this is me wrestling with the text for better or worse. So if it's good, it's good. If it's wrong, it's on me. Their battle for who's more important is the same type of symptom as their inability to have authority over demons. Because the demons saw too much brotherhood in them to be impressed by their authority. They're preening for the crowd. They are strutting in vanity and pride. And the demons are like, eh, nah not taking that person seriously. So Jesus sits them down and he goes to the core of the issue, which is you have to understand self. Now, in the same manner, I'm going to try to end with this, in the same manner that their inability to cast out demons and thus need for fasting is linked to the who's better than who argument in the same manner that those are linked Jesus's ability to cast out demons and his commitment to going to a cross are the same lesson. It's less of me and more of you, God. Less of my will and more of your will. That's easy to teach. It's not easy to live. And so you may be listening to this right now and you may be thinking within yourself, you know, okay, so, so, so I, I don't even know where to start with this. With this. Um, okay, I, 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 I feel mildly guilty uh, for being, you know, as selfish as I, sometimes I am. But, uh, okay, what next? What next? Um, Jesus, Jesus, if all of this is given to us as a piece, and this is how all of the Gospels are written, the Gospel writers themselves say, if we told the whole story, the world couldn't contain the books, which is, is a rhetorical way of speaking. Um, Jesus did a lot of things. We have to pick the powerful lesson. We have to share the instructive moment. We walked through a lot of villages with Jesus, but I want to tell the story of this one. We had a lot of disagreements among ourselves because we're people and it's hard to live together. I'm not telling you about all of them. I'm telling you about this one. Do you see? We got on each other's nerves on a regular basis. We're not telling you about all that. That's just, that's just life. I'm telling you about this one. Because there's power in the story. Uh, so in this moment, Jesus sits them down. And he says, look, this kingdom's not what you think. If you want to live a life of faith, you, you're going to have to live as though you believe God knows what you're doing and God knows your heart. And God will reward you. 
If you can't live that way, you're not really capable of being effective in the kingdom of God, or you are ignorant of the kingdom of God, or you are trying to use the kingdom of God to serve you rather than you serve in the kingdom of God. But if you can believe that God is behind this thing and that God knows who's paying and who's not paying, who supports the church and who doesn't support the church. You can't tell from the pastoral team. They love everybody. They don't, you can't tell from uh, who gets what in the church. The church doesn't talk about money a whole lot. You have to believe God knows who's paying for the air conditioning. Otherwise you'll be bitter about you paying for it. You have to believe that God knows who supports the work with tithes and offerings and those who find technical ways to get out of it. And you have to believe, look, I believe God is watching. You have to be willing to live as though, no, the pastor didn't know that I was there longer than the three people he had stand up. This has happened. Pastor Nate, he, he mentioned three names and they were there an hour. I was there all day. Pastor Nate didn't mention my name. Um, you have to believe that God was there with you. And if you can live that way, you're ready to be promoted effectively, effective immediately in the kingdom of God. You're ready to understand and see the economy of grace, the economy of heaven's uh, plenty, not earth's uh, scarcity. You're ready to live a different way. And somehow that heart is related to believing for great things for other people. Somehow, in a spiritual way, that heart is related to authority over uh, spiritual confrontations. In some way, that's the person that God can use. And so Jesus sets a child down in him, down in the midst. And he says, look, and I'm just going to put it in a kind of setting that would have more of a modern style and whatnot. Uh, look, guys, let's be honest. Uh, children are fun, but they can't do anything for you. Um, they can't. They can't help you. Um, they can't give you prestige. They can't give you uh, any place. They have no place to give. Um, there's not a lot of investment to be made for yourself in serving a child. Um, it's easy to just smile at them and keep on walking them and treat them like of little importance. But if you can't in some way understand that to God, all these human preeminence things are absurd, but what is real is his love for people. What is absurd to God is who we think is in charge of who. That's, that's funny in heaven. But what, what matters to God is even a child who they can do nothing for you. They can't, all they could do is maybe smile at you. And that's it. You did something for them. You saw them, you loved them. Now you're getting the heart, the heart of God. This way of living, giving yourself, valuing others, this is the way of the cross 
And so what Jesus says here in verse 31, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise on the third day. This is directly related to living like this. If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and a servant of all. Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so this is my challenge and I'm done. We're going to, we're going to take a moment. We're going to pray together uh, and I'm going to quit. This is, this is the challenge you might be, you might find yourself you're in. Okay. Preacher. I, 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 I think I mostly get it. I'm not saying it's easy, but I think I mostly get it. Uh, where do I start? Um, what's my next step? Um, well, I want to give you several things that are your next steps. And the first two are easy. Okay. Um, prayer and fasting. Number one, prayer is turning myself to God. Fasting is turning myself away from self, flesh, pleasures, toward God, away from this. So the principle is I'm following something, somebody, I'm turning away from something, somebody. Uh, and I see those as principles in my life. How am I doing on focusing on God's kingdom, word, mission, call? And how am I doing on turning away from the world's deceptive substitute? That's, that's question number one. Um, you have to answer that for yourself or it's not real Christianity. Uh, if I create a laundry list of thou shalt and thou shalt not, um, I've taken you out of the heart pursuit of God and I've put you in the Old Testament of don't think, just obey. And what that does is teaches you that your obedience is not enough. You need a redeemer. A heart after God seeks you to know God. So I'm not given a laundry list, but I'm given this principle toward the things of God away from the things of the world or the things of self. That's number one. Number two, uh, in our relationships, is there a way we could do a better job at preferring others? This does not make us a victim. Um, I know there's a tendency for us to think it makes us a victim, but I want to promise you, it does not make us a victim. Why? Just because I want to live a certain way doesn't mean I'm trapped in the way you want to live. I hope that makes sense. Um, all healthy, functional people of any effectiveness have necessary and appropriate boundaries. Um, and if, you, if your life is in crisis and it's not your fault, you have a boundary problem. Um, there are things, here's an example of, of boundaries. There are things I can do for you and help you and I'm willing to try. And there's things that if I did for you, I wouldn't be helping you. Not, not for the long term, maybe once or twice, I would not be helping you. I would be empowering you. I would be letting you live your own deception. Indeed, I would be the arbiter, the check writer in your self-deception because you will have chosen a life that is not realistic. So just because I want to live a certain way, doesn't mean I'm trapped in the way you want to live or you want me to live. And so this, there's the best scripture on this is where Jesus says, harmless as a dove, wise as a serpent. Harmless as a dove, wise as a serpent. 
dove harms no one. Uh, a serpent is notorious for being only a threat if you step on it. And so the genius of a serpent is concealment. And so imagine this, imagine your life. I'm going to live my life a certain way, but I'm not a victim. I'm going to help, but I'm going to help with boundaries. You say, well, that, that's kind of difficult. Exactly. Welcome to ministry. <laughs> I'm going to help. I'm going to prefer. I'm going to bless. But I am not going to empower your error. And so the first thing I can try to do is be gentle. I'll give you an example. I had a, a tough meeting today, and I, I had to have a come to Jesus meeting with somebody today, not church-related. Um, but I had some things I wanted to say, and I was frustrated. And um, I, I like you guys do, I'm sure, I, I, I prayed about it beforehand. And I was like, Lord, help me to make sure I get it right. I get my part of it right. And, and then I just kind of, as it were, tried to listen. I know that sounds silly, and it does sound, makes me sound a little bit crazy. But I, was, I tried to listen. What what would the Lord impress into my heart? And the and the, uh, the 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 things He gave me made that meeting so easy. And it almost, even though it was a negative meeting, it almost made our relationship better, in a kind of strange way. The point I'm trying to say is this: is you can say, "Oh, well, you weren't being a very much very good Christian by demanding this and requiring that." No, no, no actually, I disagree. I disagree. There is a right way to do things. My goal isn't to be never malevolent. I never wish to harm, but I'm not here as a ready victim for your harm. I have healthy boundaries. That is what we're looking for because this is when the church gets effective. I'm quitting after this. The church gets effective when we have the heart that is open but also the wisdom that is the gift of God. Remember, wisdom is one of the gifts of the Spirit. We have the open heart combined with the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge. So we're able to be open and wise, harmless as a dove, wise as a serpent. That's enough. Uh, let's, let's take a moment here and let's, uh, let's pray together. I'd like you to, wherever you are, if you're with your family or if you're with someone or you can pray together, I'd like you to uh, bow your heads together. And we're going to take a moment here and I'm going to let you reflect and then I'll lead us all in prayer in just a moment. Lord Jesus, I'm praying for the lessons, the principles, the wisdom of Mark chapter number nine to get down into my hard-headed self, get into my, my, my heart that is oftentimes in error. And I'm praying today, Lord Jesus, that I would, at least to the most ability that I can do at this stage in my life, I would see the nature of the kingdom of God and I would be freed from self-promotion. 
and I would understand how the promotion of self in some way is almost a spiritual fellowship with the very demons I'm trying to have authority over. It's the same problem, too much of me, not enough of you. Help me to have the courage, Lord Jesus, and help us as a church, help every pastor on our pastoral team, every leader in our extended church ministry. I pray that we would have uh, a passion and a hunger for what is your will, your kingdom, your calling. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. God bless you all. We love you. Um, thank you for your time. Uh, I, I, it's a lot to think about, I know, but uh, I'm going to be thinking about it. And I, I, that's the power of the word of the Lord applied in our lives. Right. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.